Welcome to the very first episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update, where each week I, your host, Tyler Cobble, will be sharing our favorite news stories in the world of commercial real estate from around the country. So we will be covering the Nashville market, which is obviously where I am based. Uh, we'll be talking about market watch. Which markets should you be keeping an eye on if you're interested in investing outside of your current market? We'll also cover each of the asset classes, office, retail, industrial, and multifamily, so that you can be sure to stay on top of the latest news in your industry. And then we'll finish it off each week with a wild card, some piece of information or some article that we feel is very important for you to know based on market trends and the like. So let's go ahead and dive on in to the Nashville market. So... The River North project, uh, which has been talked about for quite a few years now, um, is finally underway. So recently, the developer, which is a group out of Chicago, um, actually out of Washington, D.C., uh, is getting ready to, to move forward with the first phase. So the $250 million development is coming after the mayor um, and the city council here in Nashville approved some infrastructural updates. Um, to the project. So if you're not familiar with River North, it is on the East Bank, um, close to East Nashville, which is set to really thrive because of this project. Uh, but it's planned for multiple towers. I mean, it's one of the biggest developments that Nashville has ever seen, well over a billion dollars. And this first phase is slated for 650 apartment units, 83,000 square feet of office space, and 85,000 square feet of retail. So here are some renderings of the potential project. Uh, they're even looking at adding a marina uh, into the downtown area, which, of course, would be amazing considering Nashville does not have an arena uh, or marina um, close to downtown. So, you know, this is uh, slated to be about 125 acres. It's, it's one of the most anticipated developments in Nashville. It will literally change the skyline. It'll change the city because... You know, for the longest time, Nashville has not really taken advantage of its riverfront. And with this phase, um, you know, with this development, uh, we are actually looking to, uh, to capitalize on that, kind of starting to get that big city feel, uh, very, very similar to Chicago. You know, you look at cities like Chicago and how they have developed along the riverfront, uh, and, it's, and it's absolutely amazing. Up next, we have the Titans and the city of Nashville are in talks regarding a redevelopment with the Nissan Stadium. Um, here are some renderings that we are looking at um, of that potential redevelopment, uh, which would obviously create thousands of jobs and generate millions in tax revenue. Uh, the stadium, uh, for the which is currently home to the Titans, the Tennessee Titans, was built in the late 90s. And so it's, it's starting to get aged uh, as far as professional sports stadiums go and uh, they're looking at redeveloping the entire East Bank so again the East Bank this is where River North is the Titans Stadium is actually just south of uh, of River North there's also the the PSC metals uh, piece that the city's talking with uh, Carl Icahn about he's a current owner um, you know the mayor um, every mayor in Nashville has wanted to redevelop that site uh, for as long as as I've been alive um, you know, the Titan Stadium is in such a phenomenal location in Nashville. It's just across the river from Broadway, which is where all of the action is. So you think about what this could potentially bring 
to the city of Nashville having a development of this scale alongside River North, you know, people can go to Titans games and then walk right across the pedestrian bridge to Broadway. Um, it's been a phenomenal boon for the city of Nashville having it so close. Up next, we've got Market Watch. So again, which market should you be keeping an eye on? And the, the market this week is one that we've actually recently invested in. And it is a tertiary market that the that ULI has designated as one of the top five tertiary or niche markets uh, to keep an eye on over the next few years. So Chattanooga. Back in the 80s, Chattanooga, which is obviously in eastern Tennessee, uh, it's about two hours outside of Nashville, two hours to Atlanta. So it's in a very good place um, as far as, you know, distance to major cities. Um, back in the 80s, it was, it was designated the dirtiest city in America. Um, you know, there's, there's stories where uh, businessmen would bring a second white shirt to work with them because by noon that shirt would be gray because there was just so much soot in the air. You know, Chattanooga was a major manufacturing city. It's located along the river. And like I said, it's, it's two hours to, uh, to both Nashville and Atlanta. So if you're a manufacturer, it's, it's great. It's cheaper than being in both Nashville and Atlanta. You can deliver to both very quickly. Um, it's just very well located. So Chattanooga, uh, which a lot of people don't know this, actually has the best internet in the country. They used to have the best internet in the world until a city in China uh, recently uh, replaced them there. But, you know, I want to say it was within the last last decade, uh, maybe, maybe a little over because now it's 2021, the city of Chattanooga essentially treated fiber internet as a utility and installed it throughout. So if you are looking to... Uh, you know, have the fastest internet in the country and you're trying to escape California, like a lot of these tech companies are doing, you're looking at Chattanooga. Uh, you know, the quality of life is pretty unbelievable. We call Chattanooga a, a perfect blend of Denver, Colorado, uh, and Nashville, Tennessee. You know, it, it has that southern progressive city feel that Nashville brings, but it's also got all of the outdoor activities that Denver, Colorado brings. You know, within minutes, you can be kayaking, hiking, rock climbing, um, canoeing, you know, camping. It doesn't matter. You've got the mountains of, you know, you've got the Appalachians right there. But you've also got this modern city with the best internet in the country. So, of course, it's attracting a ton of millennials. Uh, we're not seeing that slowing down anytime soon. Uh, the downtown area is just so neat. I uh, you know, obviously know a lot about it because we've been going there quite a bit here recently. But the... The downtown area is amazing. I mean, we, we've been talking about if Nashville had some of these amenities, Nashville would be unbeatable when it comes to being, you know, one of the best cities in the country. Um, downtown Chattanooga has free electric buses for anybody. I mean, you can just jump on a bus and, and get anywhere around downtown that you want. Um, all, of the, all of the parking meters are actually pay by app which is incredibly progressive, right, for, for a smaller city. So it's very easy uh, for, for you to just go ahead and pay um, and not worry. You know, I mean, nobody brings quarters with them anymore, so it only makes sense. Um, you know, there's a, there's a number of actually green initiatives there, too, because the TVA is based not too far from there. Um, I saw I've seen a, a number of green roofs, solar panels around the city. They, uh, Chattanoogans like to say that they have a biking problem 
uh, not a car problem, which I love. If, if you know anything about me, I'm very anti-car. Uh, and so any city that is promoting walkability, sustainability um, is a big thumbs up in my book. So, you know, uh, can't, can't say enough good things about Chattanooga. Again, reiterating that, PC Magazine says Chattanooga is the best city in America for remote work. So if, you're, if you own a tech company, uh, you know, some, something that needs incredible internet, and you're not necessarily needing your employees to work from home anymore, or I'm sorry, work from the office anymore, you want them to be working from home, Chattanooga is a pretty great destination for that. You know, Tennessee has no state income tax. So if you're, if you're moving from California, Chicago, New York, you're automatically going to get an income bump. Uh, but the quality of living is so much higher because it's just it's not nearly that expensive. I mean, you can get a, a good apartment in Chattanooga for two to three dollars a foot. Um, so it's unbelievably affordable. And the lifestyle that you get out of that, uh, it's 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 pretty remarkable. I mean, again, you're two hours to any major city. So it's not like Chattanooga is that small. I think there's half a million people in the MSA. Uh, you know, Nashville has about two, a little over two million. Um, so of course it's, it's about a quarter of the size of Nashville, but you're two hours to Nashville. You're two hours to Atlanta. If you want to take a day trip to the big cities, uh, you can of course do that. Um, but you know, you can pay to live in Chattanooga instead of paying the, the hefty prices uh, of Atlanta and Nashville. Up next, we've got office. So what is going on in the world of office space? You know, one of the buzz phrases, um, that has been going on ever since COVID hit is that office space is dead. And honestly, it's one of the most frustrating phrases to hear because it's just not remotely true. I think people like capitalizing on something that's just dramatic, right? Oh, office space is dead. You know, people are never going to work from the office again. And while that may be true um, for our first article here, which is going to be on, you know, Sobering report for landlords. 59% of businesses expect office square footage to shrink. Maybe true to a certain extent, right? But it's not gonna, it's not completely true. Office space is not dead. It's just changing. It's just like retail. Retail is not dead. Retail is changing. You know, industrial wasn't all that sexy until e-commerce came about. So industrial changed. Um, you know, it was a lot of manufacturing. Now it's all about logistics, which, you know, of course we'll get into here in a little bit, but look. Office spaces expected to shrink. Um, you know, a lot of people have been talking about how uh, with, with more people working from home, you know, companies are just not going to need as much office space. And, and while I think that for some companies that is true, I think for just as many other companies that doesn't make any sense. You know, when, when the pandemic first hit, I had the team working from home, right? We had no idea what was going on. March, April, May, everybody was home. We were trying to figure out, you know, if, if the world was ending. But, you know, by the time June came around, the team was texting me going, hey, when can we come back to the office? We, we just enjoy getting out of the house. We enjoy working, you know, with the team more. And, you know, that was kind of surprising to me because you'd think, you know, of course your, your, your team would want to work from home, right? Um, they can kind of, you know, theoretically get more done they don't have to commute uh well you know the majority of my team lives within you know not even 10 minutes of the office so we never had issues with the commute but you know people got bored they love being around the team there's so much synergy that you get just from being around other people I, you know i think that i think that a certain percentage of businesses will actually 
they will shrink. You know, footprints are not going to continue going up. I mean, honestly, a lot of a lot of what's going on in office space is, was kind of inevitable. I think that, you know, we've seen that going on for the last 10 or 15 years with, you know, as office space continues to shrink, people move towards more open floor plans. But, you know, going back to, I mean, honestly, countering this, I think that some businesses are going to maintain the same square footage that they're in, if not at least more, because employees want to feel like they're safe in the work environment. And if you need to provide socially distanced space for them, you're going to do it. I mean, yeah, look, companies are going to be more flexible, right? They're going to allow their employees to work from home most of the time. You know, here's, here's another one. Exeter's Fitzgerald. 40% of office assets will become obsolete. You know, I think, I, I just don't think it's true. I think that it is, well, okay, let me take that back. The, the obsolescence part of it is true. The office assets, it's not like they're going anywhere. They're just going to be repurposed. You know, I'm a big fan of mixed-use properties, and I think what a lot of developers um, and investors are going to start focusing on over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years are more mixed properties. You know, of course, you can have retail on the ground floor and then office space above and call that mixed use. But it's not enough. Not enough, in my opinion. I mean, you look at some of the biggest developments going on in downtown Nashville. You've got, uh, you know, Broad West. Uh, if, if I understand correctly, they've got retail on the ground floor. They've got some office space in that building. They've got some, some condos in that building. And I think that there may be a hotel on site as well. I mean, you think about how resilient that product is in the future. You know, we, if anybody ever has to work from home, you know, you've got multifamily apartments. You don't have to worry about, you know, 80% of your building not paying rent if something really happens. You've still got apartment units there. And, and again, you, you, we're starting to talk about all of these um, assets just shifting and changing. It's just that's part of the market, right? You know, we used to have our mail delivered by horse. Now it is delivered by plane. Mail is still here. People still need mail. Um, you know, it, things just changed. Delivery changed. Salesforce recently said that their employees can work from home forever. I think that, uh, you know, with some of these larger companies, that it makes all the sense in the world. You've got 54,000 employees. You know, you're a tech company. Maybe you have enough infrastructure in place to really figure that out um, and make it work efficiently for everybody. But the average small business, they don't really want to do that. I mean, I, you know, I could tell you from experience, we work with a number, uh, I mean, almost exclusively small businesses in Nashville. And those small businesses enjoy being around their team. You know, it's, it's kind of this camaraderie of like, hey, we're out here fighting this together. Let's go build something. And, you know, it's really tough to build a culture when you don't have an office space for people to meet and get together. You know, Zoom is, is phenomenal. I think that we've figured out that Zoom really uh, is a lifesaver in certain instances. If I'm ever sick again, I can still have meetings, right? I'll just hop on Zoom, stay at home. But that's not going to replace my lifestyle. I mean, I'm not going to go out and just exclusively do Zoom meetings. You know, there's, especially if you're in sales, there's just so much of that, the, the, the physical, the physicality of it that you don't get from a, from a Zoom call, even though you're technically face-to-face. -face. But 
you know, there's not, there's no body language, right? I mean, you're only, you know, like take this right now, right? You're looking at me uh, <laughs> in, in this tiny little box on the screen. You can't see most of me and you can't really tell, am I relaxed? Am I on edge? Am I sitting forward? Am I sitting back? I think that a lot of that body language is, is very important. But again, for some companies, it just makes sense. You know, they could figure it out. They can have, they have certain metrics that, you know, their employees have to deliver on every day uh, and they can make it work. You know, when, um, I mean, my employees, we have unlimited vacation, right? Like they don't have to work from the office um, every day. It doesn't make any sense. To me, it's more about the productivity than it is just sitting in an office space and getting stuff done. That being said, I'm still going to have an office space because when we want to have team meetings or, you know, somebody is tired of working at home, they want to go. I mean, me personally, I can't work at home. We just had an ice storm here in Nashville and I was stuck at home for five days and it was absolutely miserable. I mean, I was working, of course, but it's just you don't change your environment, which in my opinion changes, you know, you change your environment, you change how you feel, you change your thought processes. There's a lot of positivity that comes from working in different environments. You know, throughout my day, I'll start off in the office. Then I'll go to the coffee shop. Then I'll go, you know, work from home for a little bit. Then I'll come back to the office. Then I'll go back to the coffee shop. I mean, it, it just, it gives me a different environment um, all day, which I think helps keep me more productive. Notel files for bankruptcy set to be bought by Newmark. Uh, this is really interesting. So it was a flex office startup, very similar to, uh, I guess you could say similar to WeWork. They were valued at $1.6 billion um, before the pandemic. And this, to me, speaks massively about lease arbitrage. Basically, what they were doing is it's a very similar model to WeWork where they come in, they lease a whole floor or you know several floors or whatever they end up doing. And they, my understanding is they're basically providing a a mix between a WeWork and a Regis where you can kind of come in and you get your own more of a private office instead of a glass box like what WeWork provides and and not quite the you know out of date um, offering that, that Regis has and they sold uh, to Newmark uh, for I believe 20 million dollars um, but yeah look at that 20 million dollar commitment for debtor in possession financing from Newmark because of their lease obligations I am sure that when the pandemic hit, uh, they just got crushed. People stopped paying rent. You know, they didn't, you know, if, if I have a month-to-month lease and I'm in office, I'm, I'm probably going to be canceling that because I'm not going to be going into an office with a whole bunch of other people um, and sharing that space and potentially exposing myself to COVID, right? So, you know, Notel has this, massive lease obligation and they have to keep paying it every month so of course you know valuation is just going to tank i mean we saw a number of short-term rental arbitrage groups file for bankruptcy to try and get out of it you know there were some here in nashville that occupied multiple multiple floors and some of the biggest towers downtown filed for bankruptcy just went away because people stopped with demand I think the future of these types of industries uh, or these types of businesses is really going to be in owning your own real estate. I I just, I don't see how the lease arbitrage model can, and and I look, I could be totally wrong, 
But I, I don't see how the lease arbitrage model really survives after a pandemic like this, at least in the iteration that it was pre-pandemic. You know, to have something that's completely out of your control come in and totally wreck your business. Uh, I mean, if they owned the real estate, at least they would have had an asset uh, to, to fall back on, right? And they wouldn't have had to have kept paying, you know, making lease payments. They could have worked with their lender or, you know, maybe they still had to work with their, you know, keep paying mortgage payments. But, you know, I don't know. I, to me, I think, um, I mean, there's a reason that WeWork has been so volatile over the last few years. Um, so anyway, I think it'll be interesting. There's obviously a need for entrepreneurial space, right? I mean, it, it, especially in Nashville, office space has gotten so expensive. You know, new construction downtown, you're looking at 45 to $50 a foot full service, um, sometimes triple net. And, that, you know, that doesn't make any sense if you're looking to start a one to five person company. Um, but you also you want nicer space. You don't want to just go rent some, cla you know, 1960s class C building that got renovated once in the 80s and hasn't been touched since. So I think that micro units will continue to grow in popularity. I'm sure that we'll be talking about that some more on this show at some point because I am a huge fan of micro units. Uh, if you've been following any of our projects, we've got several of those going on. And I've been absolutely floored by the demand in the market for micro units. Um, it, I mean, we announced one project. It had six micro restaurants in it, and it was fully leased within two weeks of the announcement. So, I, I, you know, I think that that's going to be a big piece moving forward, micro units. But anyway, moving on. Now we're getting into retail. Retail has been a very interesting sector uh, for a number of years. Everybody loves to hate on retail. Retail is dying. Amazon's killing it. Uh, why would anybody go shop uh, at, at Best Buy anymore? Best Buy actually pivoted really well. They're doing, they're doing pretty well. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of you will actually be surprised by this headline. Big box cap rates drop. The rush for investment-grade tenants caused big box cap rates to fall. So... Investors are chasing big box assets that have investment grade essential tenants. So this is nothing new. There are plenty of investment groups that preferred to invest in, uh, you know, grocery anchored shopping centers before the pandemic hit. But that's becoming even more critical now um, that people have seen, oh, okay, well, the, the essential businesses fared just fine through this. Now, look, are we, are we likely to face another pandemic that's going to completely shut down everything to where only essential businesses are going to perform very well in our lifetimes? I doubt it. I guess, I guess anything could happen. Um, but it doesn't hurt to really dive all in on these businesses. I mean, it's true, like grocery stores aren't going anywhere. You know, people, I mean, maybe maybe some people will adapt and they will start ordering their groceries online um, or through apps. But I think for the most part, you're going to still see a lot of people that are just hitting the grocery store on the way home from work and just grabbing something convenient. So, uh, you know, these uh, these assets have gotten to sub seven caps, about six and three quarters on average. It's looking like uh, which is a which is a drop in 25 basis points from from Q4 of 2019 to Q4 of 20, um, according to the Boulder Group. So, you know, let's, let's talk, what are, what are essential tenants? So, of course, you've got grocery stores, Kroger, 
Publix, depends on what part of the country you're in, but also Walmart, Costco, Target, uh, Home Depot, Lowe's. You know, these groups where no matter what, you know, I mean, are you going to go on to Amazon and order a shovel and a bag of cement? Uh, probably not. You're probably going to go down to Home Depot for that. Now, maybe you'll, you'll order a, a shovel on Amazon. Maybe there's such a good deal about it. But most people don't plan ahead to buy a shovel, right? It's, it, I mean, it, it, at least if you're if you're me. Maybe I'm the only one that just says, oh, I need a shovel today. I'm going to go get a shovel. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of my thought on that. I think retail is very interesting. Um, again, it's not dying. It's, it's actually doing really well. And it just depends on what kind of retail you're looking at, right? I mean, you can't, you can't just go get the old big box retail that, you know, has been completely replaced online by Amazon and expect to do just fine. You know, again, the targets of the world, the Kroger's of the world, they're, they're doing very well. Um, You know, what was interesting is that uh, according to this report, which you can find on globestreet.com, uh, it looks like uh, these you know, experiential retailers aren't doing so hot. Um, they were talking about how, yeah, there it is, essential uses, um, experience demand, but uh, private buyers are not interested really in the experiential stuff. Um, so that's, that's fitness facilities, movie theaters. Uh, no one's putting them up for sale. Um, you know, they're not trading. So it's, it's really interesting um, to see what's going on in the retail world. But again, uh, you know, my, my, my favorite sector of retail is neighborhood. I think that, you know, can you, can you grow a massive portfolio of neighborhood retail? Probably not, right? I mean, if you're a REIT looking to invest billions of dollars, you're not going to go take it that down by one $5 million shopping center at a time. That being said, Neighborhood retail has performed very well. You know, those are your your corner drugstores, coffee shops, dry cleaners, uh, and nail salons, right? I mean, they those that's the the kind of stuff that is really Amazon proof, right? I mean, I'm not gonna mail my dry cleaning off and have it come back to me. I mean, honestly, you know, I would have said the same thing about DVDs back in <laughs> you know the early early 2000s. Um, but you know, that being said, it's it's a much bulkier project right so I, I would rather just go drop it off um, at the dry cleaners on my on my way to work and pick it up on the way home um, so you know again I, I just I love neighborhood retail I don't think it's going anywhere I think that it is uh, it serves the conveniences of the surrounding neighborhoods that they need daily um, if, if not weekly um, which which is always nice Plummeting rents open the door for a new generation of retailers. So this is really interesting. Um, uh, this is on biz now. Up in New York, which is no surprise, people have been fleeing the city. They're tired of being cooped up. They're tired of being around, you know, millions of other people in the in the middle of a pandemic. And because of that, um, you know, you've, we've seen like Alliance Bernstein's, you know, the Alliance Bernstein's of the world. Now, obviously, that was pre-pandemic, but. That was a big deal when Alliance Bernstein moved off of Wall Street to, to Little Old Nashville. But it was already making sense before the pandemic hit. And the pandemic has only expedited the flight from blue states to red st- to blue cities within red states. So your Nashvilles, your Austins, your Raleigh Durhams, um, you know, they're they're doing really well. You know, most of you know, no state income tax in Texas and Tennessee and, and Florida. So it's, it's no, no big surprise that these massive corporations are moving to these southeastern cities. 
they're saving a massive amount of money. Their employees, you know, can get paid less but have a better lifestyle. Um, and so, you know, these massive vacancies are le- are causing rents to plummet in New York City, which is actually, in my opinion, a great thing. You know, you look through this article and it talks about, uh, you know, brothers, brothers guitar shop, about two brothers who fix guitars as a side hustle on the Upper East Side, and they're finally able to afford nice office space or a nice retail space. Um, you know, I mean, rent in rent in New York City is just absolutely it's mind boggling compared to compared to Nashville. I mean, you're talking about thousands of dollars a foot sometimes, um, which is which is really tough to believe. But this drop has actually opened it up for small businesses to lease relatively good space because landlords are just trying to get it filled. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for small businesses. We, we refuse to work with corporates, uh, corporations. Uh, it's just not our, it's, it's not our, it's not, we're not a fit for them, right? Like, you know, go work with a CBRE. They're, they're perfectly outfitted for you guys. You want to work, if you're a small business, you want to find a space in East Nashville, like we're your group. So um, to me, you know, I love, I love championing um, the small businesses out there. And so honestly, seeing retail prices drop in New York City um, for brick and mortar is, is a good thing. It's giving the small guys a chance. Maybe it's, you know, too bad for landlords. Um, but I mean, New York prices were ridiculous anyway. So moving on to industrial. You know, industrial has been phenomenal this cycle. It's been, it's, 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 it was a sleeper beforehand, and it has absolutely exploded, especially in the last five or six years. I mean, Amazon's been around for a while, but people have really started adapting to having products shipped to them, right? Um, you know, you have the the convenience. I mean, I do it all the time. I just hop on Amazon. Oh, I need to get, you know, I just ordered a yoga mat. I've been trying to do yoga mat for my back. Uh, yoga mat for my back. I've been trying to do more yoga for my back. Um, bad back from football, but you know, I hopped on Amazon, just ordered it, came in two days later. Uh, and it was great. I mean, that's, that's probably not something that I would ever go to the store for to just get a yoga mat. Um, so that's, uh, oh, here we got a, we got a comment from Jason. Let's, let's bring that into the broadcast. Jason, I live in New York city and don't have $3 million to give. Is there and a lender that you trust to help fund in Nashville? A hundred percent. Yeah, New York City is expensive, man. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some great lenders in Nashville. Um, you know, we I always work with uh, the the smaller local guys, um, and you know, I mean, they they're managing billions of dollars, so it's not like they're regional groups over the you know nationals. It just makes sense for what we do. They understand the market better. They understand the area better. So. As far as lenders go in Nashville, it, it, honestly, Jason, it depends on what you're looking to do. Um, you know, if you're if you're looking to do, you know, office, I would recommend a different group than if you're looking to do retail. If you're wanting to do development, I'd probably recommend a different group than if you want to do, you know, high vacancy value add or just stabilized commercial. Um, but what I would say is talk to Truxton Trust. Um, they're a great group in Nashville. Truxton Trust. We use Wilson Bank. Uh, quite a bit. Wilson Bank and Trust, um, Studio Bank, uh, you know, th- those three are, uh, we probably use those three more than anybody else. I mean, they're, they're phenomenal. They've always taken care of us. 
Um, and I, and I've probably got an equal amount of properties, um, with all of them working on a development right now with Wilson, um, closing on a building on Thursday, uh, with, uh, with Truxton. So pretty excited about those. Hope that helps Jason. Um, but industrial has been taking off over the last, uh, few years. So this piece is probably interesting to you though. And honestly, it just makes sense that real estate investors are warming to cold storage. So what is cold storage? It is obviously refrigerated warehousing, right? So think about food and pharmaceuticals. There have been a number of, uh, you know, these food delivery apps. Absolutely, Jason. Happy to help, man. Thanks for joining. Um, There are a number of food apps, um, you know, grocery delivery uh, that have taken off from, you know, I think one's called like Blue Plate. I don't know what they are. The ones that like send you the the pre-prepared meals, um, and, you know, all the way to just sending you straight groceries. Um, there are a number of those groups, and that has grown in popularity. People don't really want to spend all their time going to the grocery store and trying to figure out what they're going to cook that day. They just want to come home to be cooking Cajun chicken tonight, and you've got all the ingredients that you need, uh, and you're, you're ready to roll. Um, some people don't have time to go to the grocery store. They just want to come home, and they've got groceries there. So, of course, cold storage is going to be growing in demand. That's a, a relatively new uh, phenomenon that just didn't really exist, right? So cold storage is, is very interesting. You know, it's you want to be close to urban core uh, because that's where the majority, your density for delivery is going to be. However, that space can be very expensive. So, you know, we've, we've worked with a number of companies that were looking to open cold storage in Nashville and it can be really difficult because, you know, it's still technically an industrial asset, but you're going to be paying some higher prices because you've got to be downtown. So, you know, you really want to try and find like unutilized basements of of office buildings and stuff like that. But even then, you know, you've got to have loading docks and roll up doors. So it's kind of, kind of a, kind of a catch 22, honestly, but I love cold storage. I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. And, you know, especially you think about the utility for cold storage right now, trying to get the COVID vaccine out. I mean, they're having to ship these vaccines all around the country. And, you know, they, they, they only last, what, six or eight hours after being brought out of refrigeration. So you think about how important it is to keep that cold at every single stop from delivery. Because those vaccines are not being manufactured in Nashville. Um, probably not. I guess maybe they could be, but I doubt it. Uh, I don't really know a whole lot about vaccine manufacturing. Um, I, I would imagine that they're not being manufactured in Nashville and they're being shipped here. So once they get shipped here, you know, they've got to be stored somewhere. And sure, hospitals have some cold storage. But do they have enough cold storage to keep their normal supply of medicine cold and hundreds of thousands of, of COVID vaccines? So, you know, pharmaceuticals is, is, is definitely important there, too. But I think, I think the bigger play is, is grocery, grocery delivery. And, you know, Amazon's made a, a massive play into the grocery world by acquiring Whole Foods. What do you think they're going to be doing? Um, you know, of course, they're going to be using Whole Foods as a, um, as, as a hub for, for their shipping. But look at... You know, look at like all these these restaurants that are doing ghost kitchens. You know, they're the reason the ghost kitchens got started, and we'll get to this a little bit later. The reasons that the reason the ghost kitchens got started was because 
restaurants in California were getting overloaded with to-go delivery. And they needed some second location that didn't see customers where they could just focus solely on delivery so that they could keep their customers that were coming into the restaurant happy. So I could see the exact same thing happening with cold storage and, and groceries. Next thing, post-COVID, is the logistics sector the new office? You know, office space has for many, many years been the backbone of institutional investors' portfolios. It's been relatively secure, right? I mean, people need office. They want to work downtown. They have employees coming to work. Well, of course, that's changed a little bit, as we discussed earlier in the office segment, because people are you know, more likely to be working from home or they're changing office space, which, you know, has created a little bit of insecurity in the office world. So logistics, of course, has absolutely taken off. It's more stable, right? I mean, stuff has got to get shipped to and from other places. Uh, you know, I, I, I just don't see online ordering or e-commerce going anywhere. I don't know what could possibly disrupt something like that. Something probably will come along and disrupt it at some point. But people are going to continue to order stuff online, and it needs to get shipped. And so there will always be demand for companies to figure out what's the most efficient way to ship that to where we make the most money, and where do we need warehouses? You know, what's, you know if, if we're shipping something from Dallas, Texas to Nashville, Tennessee— you know, but we also need to go to Huntsville, you know, is, is Nashville going to be the best warehouse to serve both of those markets? Or is Memphis going to be the best warehouse? Because we could drop it all off in Memphis and then Memphis could serve, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's that kind of stuff. And that's not going anywhere. That's going to do really well. And look, industrial is not sexy. You know, it's not one of those things that you're going to go, you know, talk to your, to your friends at the, at the country club and brag about how cool of an industrial warehouse you have, right? I mean, that's what people do with towers. Um, but I mean, it's going to give you consistent, solid returns and it doesn't have to be sexy to make you a lot of money. So that's, that's what I love about industrial. Uh, it's, it's just, um, it's just, it's solid, man. Uh, you know, I, I really, I really like where it is. All right, let's dive on into multifamily. Multifamily is probably the asset class that most of y'all are familiar with. It seems like most of my followers have been, uh, you know, transitioning from single family to commercial. And obviously multifamily is a very easy way to do that, right? Because it's, it's a step bigger, but it's still familiar. So multifamily um, is a background uh, of mine that, you know, it's, it's certainly not as strong as office retail and industrial, but it's growing. You know, the last couple of years, I've been involved in some apartment development, we are now managing apartment units. Uh, my partner, Bruce Peterson, in the property management company, you know, he owns 1,100 doors. So I've been learning a lot from him. So it's, it's been fun to, uh, to you know, kind of bring a commercial perspective into multifamily instead of the other way around. You know, most, most investors uh, and developers um, that, are, that are training people, they actually start off, or, or training, that are sharing any information on the market actually started off in multifamily and then kind of branched out from there. And that seems to be the most common path is, you know, the most, you know, probably starting off in single family, moving into multifamily, moving into, you know, some form of commercial. Um, this, uh, this first news article is going to be, you know, no surprise to anyone. 
Multifamily construction still suffering from scarcity, delays in obtaining materials. I mean, lumber, steel, labor, prices have skyrocketed over the last, I'd say, 12 to 24 months. They've been going up since then, but they've really, really gone up. I mean, you know, over 80% of multifamily developments are saying that they're experiencing delays or price increases uh, because they're, you know, their projects have been impacted by, by all of this. I mean, it first happened, I noticed it was a huge jump when Houston got hit by that hurricane because there was so much damage in that city um, and all the materials started going to Houston. And so if you wanted to get anything uh, in the southeast, you, you were just paying absolute premiums for it. Now, you know, obviously lumber, labor, uh, steel, those are not the only pieces of construction that are going up. Concrete. Concrete has exploded in the last few years. Um, you know, I remember when we were talking to a, a contract. So I developed 42 townhomes, uh, I guess, three years ago now. And, you know, the, the concrete price that we got uh, when, you know, that we were quoted when we first started on the deal compared to the concrete price that we ended up when we were actually pouring concrete, I think there was like a 30% difference, which is, which is just remarkable. Um, yeah, only that, speaking of 30%, lumber prices ended the year 33% higher than the start of 2020, according to the National Association of Home Builders. That's not fun. You know, if you're going in and you're basing, you know, because, I mean, build, builders, yeah, I mean, you're going to try and pass that, that pricing off to off to the end consumer. But I mean, if the home isn't going to comp out, the home's not going to comp out, right? So I mean, that almost just eats your profit margin, you can't pass off 100% of that 33% increase. So you know, it'll be interesting to see where modular construction goes with this. People have been talking for years about, you know, shipping container, container, shipping container homes. And, you know, modular construction that's that's designed and manufactured in factories and then delivered and assembled on site. I think that that is, of course, the future. The issues have been, you know, transit, transportation. I mean, think about it. You're, you're not just shipping lumber anymore. You're shipping entire units. Um, and just demand, right? I mean, it's People haven't been, well, I guess not, not necessarily demand. There's probably a high demand out there for it, but more so experience with the product. You know, if, if you're developing a multi, multi-million dollar development, you'll be less likely to use a construction method or a material that you've never used before because now you're, you're risking investor dollars. But it's becoming more and more prominent. We've seen a few shipping container developments here in Nashville. We're exploring a few shipping container developments ourselves. You know, they, they make great covered land plays. Uh, you know, as, as lumber and steel continue to go up, at some point, it'll make more sense to just pay for, you know, a shipping container that's already fully assembled to just be delivered on site and, and, and you know, placed where it needs to be. You think about how much of the construction delays come from weather that could be completely prevented by manufacturing inside. Um, you know, and, and if, and if lumber keeps going up the way that it is, I mean, steel at some points, you know, I don't think steel has been going up nearly as much as lumber has at some point, it's going to make more, more sense to just build out of steel. You might as well, you know, a lot of, a lot of developers don't build over five stories because after, you know, five stories or I think it's, yeah, just over five stories, you have to start doing steel construction in order to maintain the integrity of the property. And 
you know, so because of that, a site may be zoned for six stories uh, or even seven or eight, and the developer will choose to stick to five so that they can stick frame it. And, you know, if steel is relatively is close enough to the price of lumber, you might as well just steel frame it and go up a few more stories and try and recoup your costs. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I'm sure lumber's going to go down at some point. You know, you look at a lot of the a lot of the supply chains just been disrupted because of COVID. Um, so I'm, I'm sure it'll go down or at least a level off at some point. But, you know, we've we've yet to see that. Apartment developers are increasing unit sizes for new projects in response to the pandemic. This is also from BizNow. So, you know, obviously with people working from home, they are going to be, you know, living in a micro unit and you're working from home, you're probably going to be going crazy. Um, I don't live in a micro unit. I had to work from home for a week and I about went crazy. So I could totally sympathize with that. I think, you know, in suburban markets, it makes all the sense in the world. Right, because the the price difference isn't going to be you know that big between a two bedroom and a three bedroom, and people are going to be willing to pay that just to have to turn that third bedroom into an office space, or maybe they'll just design these two bedrooms with a third room that's specifically for an office. I think I think obviously the flexibility of having that potentially as a bedroom uh, would make more sense, but you know I know some groups are looking at just designing it straightly you know completely as a uh, as an office space. You know, there's there's one guy here that's quoted as saying micro unit, units was the buzzword. It's never going to happen again. And that's just absolutely wrong. I don't think micro units are going anywhere. I mean, look, you're not going to go build a 300 square foot unit out, you know, 45 minutes outside of Nashville. There's not going to be any demand for that. The demand is for that is going to be in downtown Nashville where people can walk to all of their, you know, your amenities are what surrounds you. It's the neighborhood, right? You don't want to be cooped up in your house. You're not going to start seeing, you know, 1200 square foot apartments being built in New York City uh, for, for your average, you know, wor- worker. Like it's just, that's just not going to happen. You're still going to see these 300, 400, 500 square foot units. Uh, you know, in Nashville, like a 500 square foot unit is considered a micro unit. So it's still relatively big compared to some of these bigger cities. But look, micro units are still happening. They're always going to be happening. Uh, they are far more affordable. You know, we're, we're working on a micro unit apartment complex right now. We're going through lease up and it's crushing it. It's 126 units. It was a motel conversion, 216 square feet, tiny, tiny, tiny. Uh, it's basically a studio with a little closet in the wall, kitchenette and a bathroom. And they've, it's leasing up really well right now because for, you know, yeah, sure. It's $4 a foot, right? So you think that's expensive. Uh, and that's, you know, eight, eight. 95 a month, right? It's under $1,000 a month, all bills paid, Wi-Fi, you know, utilities. I mean, that's one of the most affordable apartments you can get in Nashville. And it's a single unit, right? Like you're by yourself. So, you know, you're going to go pay more than that sometimes to be that close to downtown and have a roommate if you want to get a house. So why not pay $895, you know, Get a place by yourself. You don't have to worry about having roommates. Um, and, you know, let the city be your amenity package. You know, go spend more money on on eating out and having having fun and activities. I mean, that's, you know, that's the millennial mindset. Uh, that's my mindset. I mean, I, 
you know, spend as little on my house as possible. I, I don't need a whole lot, right? I, I, that's a place where I go home and go to sleep, and then I wake up and leave again the next day. So I think, uh, I think in suburban markets, 100%. Look, I mean, you know, these, these um, two, two and three bedrooms have been leasing more, but from what I've seen, and maybe, maybe the data would prove me wrong, but in my experience, you know, these smaller units in downtowns, uh, in downtown cores, especially Nashville um, and Chattanooga, where we have experience with this, they're leasing up just fine. People always will always want to live around the activity um, where they can get out and go do things, go go have fun experiences. So, um, yeah. Now, for the wild card, this week's wild card, we're gonna be talking about ghost kitchens. Like I'm like I mentioned to you earlier, ghost kitchens that has been a massive buzzword ever since uh, COVID hit, ghost kitchens are amazing. I think that they are the future of restaurant space. I don't think that we have nearly enough of them. Nobody has really been focusing on them too much. There've been some articles written, but you know, it takes a while to, to get out and actually develop a project uh, that, that will serve as a ghost kitchen. So if you're joining me live on YouTube or if you're joining me on YouTube and watching the video, um, ignore this obnoxious uh, <laughs> animation we've got going on here. Is an article from Marker, uh, actually Medium, um, by Adam Chandler. It says how a shadow of how a shadow army of ghost kitchens took over America's restaurants. So, like we said earlier, ghost kitchens became popular because groups were looking to relieve the burden of to go and delivery orders from their restaurants, so that their actual sit down diners would not get upset at how long it was taking to get their food. Well, these ghost kitchens have really started to thrive in the pandemic. Um, they were they were starting to really gain speed beforehand. I mean, we were keeping our eye on them before that. But the pandemic hit, and suddenly nobody was going out to eat. What were they doing? Well, they were ordering food on the apps. You know, you got Uber Eats and Postmates. And, I mean, I you know, I almost use that exclusively. Maybe that's just a me thing. Maybe it's a millennial thing. But, I mean, I eat out for almost every meal, whether that's getting delivered to me through Postmates or if I'm actually going out. So it's no surprise that ghost kitchens are taking off. Now, you combine that with the affordability of a ghost kitchen compared to restaurant space. You know, I don't know if you've ever dealt with leasing restaurant space or done anything in the restaurant world before, but that's some of the most expensive space that you can you can lease in the commercial world. In terms of just upfront costs, price per square foot, if you want to be in a good area, you know, building on a kitchen is six figures, right? And that's that's just if you're building on a kitchen. You know, let's let's talk about the front of house dining where, you know, you need to have a nice enough spot where your customers want to go have an experience and eat out, right? You're 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 competing with so much. Well, ghost kitchens eliminate that. They are just a kitchen. You don't have to pay, you know, you don't have to pay for those empty seats where nobody's dining. You don't have to pay for the additional staff to serve and bust the tables. All you do is cook. You accept online orders, cook and send it out, and and you're done. Now, we're working on some uh, a pretty interesting project here in Nashville called The Wash. It is actually a car wash that we are converting into micro restaurant units. So they're 380 square feet each. And we're turning those bays in, into restaurants. So it's just a kitchen, but it's got a walk-up counter. So this is where we decided to put our little twist on ghost kitchens. I'm calling them retail-facing ghost kitchens. 
I mean, there's there's not a term. You know, hopefully that term will catch on. I mean, that term makes sense. It's not like it's a super unique name. It just is what it is. But it's a retail-facing ghost kitchen. I mean, these these spaces are 380 square feet. They're just kitchens. They are designed and highly optimized for to-go and delivery. We have, I think, five parking spaces on site for the six units. And those are 10 minutes max because it is just for to-go and delivery. If you want to actually come be a patron, which we've actually got some really cool patio space, we want people to be able to come out and sample all the, all the different things, all the different restaurants that we have there. But, you know, you got to find a place and park off site and, and walk over. Um, so, you know, they're, they're ghost kitchens first, focused on to-go and delivery. But if somebody wants to walk up to the counter and order and hang out outside and, and sample, you know, the different restaurants, they can absolutely do that. And so it kind of adds this new, this new twist to the world of ghost kitchens. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see because you'd think, wow, 380 square feet is tiny. And it is, I mean, it's just, it's just a kitchen, but for these groups, that's all they need. So we, we had leased that project, uh, within two weeks of announcing it, all six bays and they all, except for one did not have a previous location. Uh, I think one or two maybe started off with a food truck. Um, a couple of others were, you know, chefs in other kitchens. Um, now one concept had a current location and the, the other con, there was another concept that has a different restaurant. So totally different, you know, style, but they were all startups, uh, which, I, which is really cool. I mean, you think about how expensive it is to start up a restaurant. I mean, six figures at least, if not seven. And most chefs, they're very, they're very artistic. They're very creative. You know, they don't want to go out and, you know, they want to cook. They want to come up with cool restaurant ideas. They don't want to go out and raise hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to go do this project, but they have to because that's the only way, you know, working in a kitchen, you're not going to make a whole lot of money, right? Like you're not going to, you're not going to get rich working in a kitchen. So it's, it's very tough for them to um, start their own concept. So ghost kitchens, future, it's totally the future. Pay attention to those. It's, it's a great little micro unit. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's the next food truck revolution. Think about what food trucks did to the restaurant restaurant industry and how many unique concepts we got out of that. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's what we're going to be getting out of that. So keep an eye on ghost kitchens. So that is it for this week's episode of the commercial real estate investor weekly update. Uh, you know, we'll be coming at you live every Monday at 5:30 PM central standard. So feel free to come join us live. If you're listening on the podcast, um, you know, just search Tyler Cobble on YouTube or the commercial real estate investor weekly update. We'll of course have links um, to everything that we're talking about in the description, um, in the podcast notes, the show notes. Uh, if you enjoyed listening, please uh, like and subscribe. It, of course, helps us continue to bring this amazing content to you, and we will see you next week.